Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 288 tonight. Uh, I am joined by Matthew Palomari, who is an author. He's been on our show uh, a few times in the past. Always a great conversation. Uh, super knowledgeable about uh, psychedelics and psychedelic culture, um, as well as an amazing author who writes fiction and nonfiction. And uh, I have two of his books uh, the links included down below. The first one is available right now, which is the Thinning Veil, 13 Twisted Tales. Uh, sounds like a perfect time of year to uh, get into that one. Um, as well as I Am Conscious Incarnate. And when does that one come out? Uh, uh, November 12th. November 12th. So check those out. I, I, yeah, I have the links down below. Um, you know. I've read quite a few of Matthew's books. I love them. Um, I'm more of a nonfiction guy, but I know a lot of people love his fiction and his novels and stuff like that. So please do go check those out. How many books have you written now? What are you at? I'm starting to lose track, but uh, <laughs> I Am Consciousness Incarnate is number 20 that's coming out, and I'm working on number 21. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's, a, good, uh, that's a good amount right there, that's for sure. Um, so yeah, go check those out. Um, I have not read either of those, so I'm looking forward to those as well. Uh, before we get started here tonight, the best way to support Mind Escape is to click the link tree link down below. Uh, we have all of our stuff in there. We've got, actually, we did one Patreon segment with uh, Matthew, I believe the first time he was on, maybe the second time. Uh, where he tells an unbelievable story about near-death experiences and his one buddy who is a uh, musician on the, in Hawaii. Um, and, uh, yeah, I won't ruin that, but if you're a Patreon member or, uh, you know, you're interested, go check that out on there. Uh, we do have a merch store, and um, check out our documentary if you haven't already. Uh, it's called As Within, So Without, From UFOs to DMT. It's a, It's free and available right now. On our YouTube channel, there isn't a direct. There is a director's cut on our Patreon page as well. Um, so go check that out. And the easiest way to support Mind Escape is just to leave us a nice review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We do have our podcast uh, video podcast on Spotify, so please check that out. If you're listening on an audio platform, please check out our YouTube channel. We do all of our shows live on YouTube. And if you are watching on YouTube, please check us out on all the audio platforms. But uh, Without further ado, welcome on the show, Matthew. How are you? I'm doing great. It's good to be back. I love you guys. Um, I guess Maurice is not here tonight, huh? No. That's okay. You're he's, you're, he's you're the representative. Yeah, he's done. You can write you uh, can write a book about that. Uh, I don't even want to know. <laughs> I'm joking. It's it's part of your thirteen twisted tales. The, the oh, veil. There you go. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, no, he's just busy. He's a professional photographer. It's wedding season and all sorts of crap going on. So, um, 
but yeah, he's he pops in and out when he can. He just got back from a, a backpacking trip to the Tetons, and he's oh, got a lot nice. of stuff going on. So, but we'll have him back on. He's uh, he's just a busy dude, and that's what Mind Escape is. You know, it's a it's a vehicle for people to pop in and out, and you know whatever you got going on in life. You know, there's always a um, you know a place no. where people talk about that stuff. So. Well, tell him I still love him, even if he doesn't love me. It's okay. He's forgiven. He does love you. He's actually, I think you're one of the only people whose names he remembers. He's definitely, (laughs) uh, yeah, he's definitely not good at remembering names. So shout out to Maurice. We know you're out there. Um, No, I love him. He's, he's my cousin. He's my blood. There's no way. Like I said, it's, it's one of those scenarios where, um, he comes and goes as he pleases. He's always kind of, uh, been one foot and one foot out so um right on. all right let's see here um i think last time you were on we discussed like the golden ratio and some more metaphysics mm-hmm. type stuff because that was based on your book at the time uh mm-hmm. that we were discussing but i think one of the more interesting conversations we've had on the show was actually when we were kind of talking about uh psychedelic culture and mm-hmm. um you know, like clandestine chemistry and um, mm. those like early experiments with like, uh, um, you know, Hart, K- Casey Hardison. I think you, did you mention that you were at one of those? Um, oh, yeah. Can we talk Casey's, about that? Oh, yeah, sure. You yeah, know, K- Casey's a good buddy. Uh, sometimes he gets a little carried away. He's, he's in passion mode. But uh, we've been in touch for quite a bit. He's a big fan of my writing also. And, um, I actually met him at the entheobotany seminars back in the late 20th century. Sounds weird, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, that does sound. But yeah, he uh, he spent time with me. He, he he stayed in my house for a while and all that. He's been all over the map, so we have a, a lot of history. Um, in fact, I sent him my memoir when he was doing time there in England for his drug manufacturing. Hmm. So... He's a, yeah. he's a character and a half. If anybody wants like a more in-depth look at all that, there's actually a really good episode of uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia um, where he talks about Daryl Lemaire, uh, all the MDMA synthesis, and uh, if Casey Hardison was like Daryl uh, Lemaire's protege kind of. Um, and then Casey Hardison goes off on his own to... Uh, make his own stuff. He goes to England and then kind of gets in trouble there. Um, spends what, like I think, five to ten years. Uh, I think prison. he did. I think he did ten years. Ten years. Um, yeah. And uh, that's that's kind of the life of these these people that kept this thing going, right? I mean, look, that's the one thing I get aggravated when I see like the scientists talking about it now and stuff like that. Like you don't know the legal shit that some of these people went through just to keep these ideas and compounds and knowledge alive. And, and, you know, you need like, you know, you get older, like that Daryl LaMare guy in that episode is like 90 years old. And this guy's talking Mm -hmm. about synthesizing MDMA, you know? So you do need, um, that like continuation thing happening. And I, like I said, I don't see enough scientists and people respecting, that whole thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm just ranting now, but like, what, what's your take on it? Well, I've, I've known, I've been good friends with some of them. Um, Actually, hold on. Friend, Can you turn your volume down a little bit? I think it's just yeah, breaking there's up. A a... Thre- there's, there's a threshold on it. Oh, you can't hear me now, right? 
Here, I'm turning you up on my end now. Okay, how's that? Yeah. Is that still too much? No, you're good. I think that's okay. a lot better. Anyway, um, I unofficially helped my friend Charlie Grobe. Charlie Grobe is the director of child psychiatry and psychology at UCLA Harbor, Harbor Medical Center. And he did one of the first studies um, using psilocybin for death anxiety in terminally ill cancer patients. And it was one, like one of the very first um, sort of uh, federally approved DEA approved programs. And uh, my good friend, Lorenzo of the uh, Psychedelic Salon, his wife was the chief nurse on that project. So uh, I spent a lot of time with Charlie. I helped him with some of the music for the study. And I gave some input here and there on it. You know, I was very peripherally involved. I, don't, I didn't do any major heavy lifting for it. But I was really proud of him. He was one of the first breakthroughs. Um, and I've known a number of other researchers o over the years that have come, come through um, doing the work. And of course, I was good friends with Sasha Shogun the godfather, the, uh, the, the, the ultimate wizard. Um, and I was really blessed to be friends with him and his wife, Anne. They were very uh, uh, instrumental and influential for me. And I met most of those people at the Entheobotany seminars. They, were, they went from like the mid-90s till about 2001. Uh, Paul Stamets was there. Terrence McKenna was there. Uh, the Shogans, uh, Giorgio Samarini did some real breaking, cutting-edge work with Iboga back then. Uh, Christian Reich, uh, who, sorry to say, recently passed away. Um, he was Germany's leading expert in shamanism, and his wife, Claudia. And uh, Ralph Metzner was there. Um, a lot of the real luminaries, and, and we were really seriously underground then. And a lot of the substances that are now getting to be popular, some of them that we were working with then weren't even illegal yet because nobody really knew what they were. So uh, case in point, and I get a little nuts about some of the stuff that's going on now, but um, we were getting 5-MeO. I first learned about it in 98, um, and I tried it. And we were getting it from labs in um, China. And it wasn't illegal yet because nobody knew what it was. And that set me off on a 13-year um, journey, so to speak. So I was really lucky to be part of all that. Um, I got to know Terrence McKenna really well. And when Terrence died, that's when the entheobotany seminars uh, ended. Because the people just, after Terrence was gone, people just kind of didn't have the same kind of interest. He really was the bird, you know. He was the... Uh, the merry, the merry prankster, the merry, you know, the, the, the Pied Piper, that's the word I'm looking for, as opposed to Ken Kesey. And I went to my first one in, in 1996 up in San Francisco. And then I went in 98 was in Ushmal, the ruins of Ushmal in Yucatan. And then uh, 99, 2000 and 2001 were all in Palenque, Chiapas. And they were great. You'd have a morning lecture you'd have an afternoon lecture and you'd have an evening, evening lecture. And of course, all of Sasha Shogun's acolytes would come and they'd have all their own new creations. And um, there was lots of things to test and try out. So it was quite the experience. 
And then I, I very studiously recorded all the lectures that I went to. And when Lorenzo decided to start the Psychedelic Salon, uh, it was in 2007 when he started that, um, I said, here, and I gave him talks, uh, boxes of cassettes. I said, here you go. So, you know, he had Chris John and, and as I say, Ann and Sasha and, and all the rest of the crew. So it was quite, and it was great because it was, there was, I don't know, maybe a hundred people. So it had an intimacy to it. Um, and it lasted for a week. And it was really a, a wonderful life-changing experiment. And the, the guy who, who put them all together, he just passed away last year. He was one of my biggest mentors, uh, Ken Symington. He, he, he always liked to be in the background, but he was really putting together things. He was a great organizer. So, and that's where I met Casey um, way, way back when. Uh, it's amazing how quick the time has gone by. So that's um, crazy. Yeah. I'd love yeah, to have yeah. Lorenzo on here too. I've actually listened to a decent amount of his podcasts, um, but we've never spoken, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I love hearing all the old stories and connections and um, oh, yeah. stuff like that. And actually when we had you on initially, I didn't even know you were connected to all those different people, you know? So it's interesting when you talk to people um, back then, it's kind of like, a lot of the people knew a lot of the same people because it, it was kind of a tight knit community, you know, and, um, even now, um, it's not the, even though these compounds, like, I guess, so I'm here in Michigan and they've decriminalized a lot of things. And, mm -hmm. um, I know Ann Arbor is pretty free with the uh, psilocybin and stuff like that. Uh, but it's still not easy. Like I don't, you know, it's not like you can just go somewhere or whatever. And I'm out of touch with, I don't play in jam bands anymore or really connect with people like I used to. So, you know, you, we do need to keep pushing forward for, you know, access to these things through testing and stuff like that. So we can get to a place where it's safe for everybody in my opinion, but you have somebody like you who's well experienced and somebody even like me who um, in my younger years would <laughs> experiment a lot more. But again, like nowadays with fentanyl and powders and stuff like that, you really just got to be like super, super careful. It, it is. It's the Wild West now. And when I first started out, I, I've I, here's how old I am. I've got over 50 years of uh, lots of psychedelic experience. And back then, there was no such thing as microdosing. Uh, in fact, I have younger friends now, and they tell me I'm microdosing. I'm like, what? But, um, you know, uh, Jim Fadiman is another very close friend of mine, and he really kind of wrote one of the best books, uh, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Um, and, you know, there really does need to be guidance. We didn't have any guidance. We just basically blew our brains out. And uh, the acid I used to get was, um, was made at MIT. Uh, I grew up in Boston and Dorchester. So we called MIT the Mental Institute for the Touched. And the guy we got the acid from he went by My Favorite Martian. And that stuff was four-way. It took, I had to do it maybe six, seven, eight times before I can handle doing a whole hit. Um, and there was, and then, you know, so there was that. And a little bit of mushrooms, but then there was speed and there were downers. There weren't all the wonderful things that Sasha, uh, Sasha the, the wizard uh, created. It was pretty limited. There was no 
boundaries, no rules, nobody. We were just let's 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 try this and see what happens, you know. Um, and and of course there were problems that that popped up and all the stories about people jumping off of buildings and all that crazy stuff because they thought they could fly. As a matter of fact, I was reading this not all that long ago. One of the first guys when the CIA got into it. Yeah, the Wormwood MK Ultra thing. MK Ultra, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were dosing people without telling them. And one of the guys that they dosed had some serious psychological issues, and they dosed him. And he was like one of the first people to jump off of a building. You know, to me, to dose somebody and not tell them is like the ultimate cardinal sin. He was one of their own dudes, too. Like, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. And all the other stuff that they did. Um, you know, <laughs> I hate to say it in this way, but, you know, you, you, you can't trust the government, um, especially with this stuff. And, and even like, you know, MDMA, I think it was originally discovered in something like 1865. In, uh, in Germany, I believe, and they can't patent it. So if, if the pharmaceutical companies um, had their way, they'd have a direct debit from your checking account so you could get your freaking antidepressants every week, right? The other person that was a big part of the, the Palenque seminars was Jonathan Ott. And uh, Jonathan always called it the pharmacratic inquisition, um, you know, because they're all about the money. And, it, and there's no, it's not about, you know, healing. So one of the big barriers to having MDMA uh, becoming legal is because they can't patent it. And it really doesn't cost all that much to manufacture. So they don't want that. And there's so many people who have maybe one or two sessions with MDMA and get some good follow-up, you know, with a, with a good uh, therapist or psychologist, and they're healed. They don't need to keep taking it. Um, of course, some people, I won't mention any names, but, uh, you're looking at one of them who, who has had some good times at some raves and things like that over the years, you know, a little bit of recreational, um, is okay. I also, during that time, um, managed after lots of resistance to worm my way into, um, ayahuasca. And, uh, you know, now I've been going to the jungle for 25 years. Um, I've done 13 10-day extensive dietas with ayahuasca and other plants. I work with uh, Shipibo Indians down there. And I've done a lot of other work all around the place with that and have some um, really good people in that community. And, of course, a lot of my mentors have now passed away. So now I'm becoming the mentor. I'm carrying the torch because, I'm, you know, I was lucky to have all those experiences brought to me. And I feel very obligated to help other people facilitate that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I'm down for the group thing myself, but if I ever am, I'm calling. You'll be the first person I contact to to, uh, to consult on what what I should be doing. So, um, but yeah, so you mentioned actually James Fadiman, and I know you tried to put me in touch with him before for whatever reason. We just never got connected, but yeah. He's mentioned, I think, at the beginning of Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. There's like a courtroom scene, um, mm. Tom Wolfe's breaking it down. And I think he mentions Fadiman and his wife uh, getting yeah. some of the prankter, pranksters bailing them out of prison. I don't know if that's the same Fadiman, but... Yes. It is? Oh, okay. Yeah, his wife, his wife is Ken Kesey's ex-girlfriend. 
Oh, wow. Okay. And she was, she was getting ready to get on the bus further. And he basically said to her, if you go on the bus, we're done. And so she didn't go. I think, I think she's a, she's Dorothy. Um, I've never met her, but I've spent a fair amount of time with Jim. Um, actually a little quick story about him. It's a great story. I, I, you know this, I've been teaching at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference for 35 years now. And Jim came to my workshop as a student working, he was working on some fiction and I didn't know who he was. So during the course of the week, he became sort of like my teacher's pet. He's a good, good fiction writer. And so toward the end of the week, he comes up to me and he gave me the novel that he wrote. It's called The Other Side of Hate, H-A-I-G-H-T. And, um, and I looked at it and looked at him and I said, you're one of us, aren't you? And he goes, oh yeah. And then I looked up who he really was and I was like, oh my God, you're that, you know? And I was really blown away. Um, he came uh, to the conference through his uncle Clifton, who was like a literary legend. Um, he started one of the biggest writing book clubs back in like the 60s. And um, he was best friends, Clifton was best friends with uh, Barnaby Conrad, who started the conference. So he was a big part of the conference. So that's how Jim got in. But I had no idea who he was. There, there he was in my workshop. He was awesome. Great writer. He was, um, he was humble, you know, and, and very talented. So um, we established a great, great, great relationship and we traded books. And then I got to see him a few years later. Um, he was speaking with um, Stan Groff up in LA. And I actually went up there with Lorenzo. Um, and I interviewed Jim actually on a, one of the episodes of the Psychedelic Salon when his book came out, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. So uh, I got a special connection with him. Um, and now, like I said, he's, he's getting up there too. They're all getting up there. So uh, I'm now kind of carrying the torch, whether I like it or not. So. Well, no, I mean, look, you know, you, whether you're intentionally doing it or not, you do it by telling these stories and spreading knowledge and sharing your books and, you know, things like that. I don't, um, I don't think you have to be like, I'm the ambassador from the past to the future or whatever, you know, I don't think it has to be anything like that, but I think no, you do a great I, job. Just keep doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Um, I'm also that way in, in the literary community with the Santa Barbara Writers Conference. I was mentored, if anybody knows who Ray Bradbury is, I was mentored by him and Charles Schultz, uh, Charlie Brown, Peanuts. Uh, his son, Monty, owns the conference now, so he's keeping it going in honor of his dad, really. And um, all of those guys now, suddenly I turn around and I'm going, shit, I'm going to be 68, and they're all leaving, and here I am. So I really feel it, uh, obligated not only to carry it on, but it's really important for me to get information out to people that's good information. You know, I'm always saying two things I always say. One, everything I say is the truth in my universe. It doesn't have to be in anybody else's. People can take it or leave it. That, that's one of them. And then the other thing is um, it's, just, it's just important to be straight up and honest. And um, I, I don't, I have this whole thing I go, I go a little nuts about. I call it guruitis. Um, another good friend of mine talks about the guys who are sort of the wannabe shamans and he calls them the showman, you know? 
And um, I always say that um, I don't heal anybody ever. I can point people in the direction, but they got to do the work. And there is a method to all this madness. Um, there is um, ways to figure it out. In the end, it all really mostly comes down to shadow work. And um, Ann Shogun actually directed me toward that way back. And it was, it was a, a big influence in my writing. So it's important to get good information out there. And um, there's so many, you know, wannabes and fakes and people who, you know, like somebody will do ayahuasca three times and suddenly they've had a profound experience and suddenly they're an expert, right? And that just makes me nuts because it's much deeper than people realize. And there are different ways to do it. So, I mean, even the people, like I said, I, I don't want to disparage because I do love the science aspect of it, but there's a lot of scientists too that are just looking at these things like they are just compounds or chemicals and then they fit, you know, this compound will fit lock and key into the 5-HT2A receptor and, you know, that's how it works and then there there's nothing else to that. Like I see a lot pushing for the idea of let's isolate the compounds that don't have any psychoactive effects to try and heal these people or help these people, which maybe that's great. You know, like there should be as many options as possible, but those people are also like demonizing the psychedelic aspect of it. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them demonize the psychedelic components of it. So, um, you know, I'm all, I'm all about options. There should be a psychedelic component. There should be maybe a non-psychedelic sure. compound, you know, like tabernathalog, which is like, one of the uh, compounds from iboga that they isolated where it doesn't have any psychoactive components, but it might help people with addiction. You know, like that's cool. Like I'm all about that, but let's, let's keep all the tools in the toolbox and whatever. We're all individuals that have different issues and neuroses and problems. You know, I'm all about the more options out there, the better, because I feel like we all have to figure out what works best for us. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that's funny is I will tell people, oh, you know, uh, I had this most profound experience, this healing experience, and I and I did this work with, with for arguments like with ayahuasca, and I learned these things, and I really healed myself from this wound, and they'll be, oh, wow, that's great. And then they'll say, well, did you see colors or and patterns? And I go, oh, yeah, and then suddenly they want to discount the whole thing because I saw colors and patterns, right? I'm like, hello, come on. I mean, is it, is you going to discount that because I had some fun doing it too, you know, traveling? Well, I, I mean, I personally, for me in the past, when I've talked about this with my OCD, when I, when I was younger and had really heavy experiences with psilocybin, uh, and sometimes even MDMA, um, it's the shock and the awe and the metaphysical nature of it. It's the... The feel, knowing that there's something bigger than yourself that maybe ties all this whole thing together um, is what's therapeutic. We, at, at our core, I don't think in, you have that one book. I always forget the title, but I read it and I really, uh, the death one with the um, the Grim Reapers on the cover. Um, oh, uh, Death, a Love Story. Yeah, Death, a Love Story. So like we're all scared to die and we're all going to die it's inevitable right the universe is supposedly at some point going to die so like these things are going to happen we're just trying to prolong the inevitable right so mm -hmm. um, my thought is is why not make it as interesting as possible and create as much um, 
mystery and and try and figure out what the heck's going on here. Um, so when I have those experiences, would have those high dose experiences, and I would have some sort of metaphysical insight or something like that. That's what was therapeutic to me. It wasn't the compound itself, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. One of the things I'm always telling people is that regardless of the experience and regardless of what you take, it's always a subjective experience. One of my favorite expressions is radical subjectivity. You, you know, depending on your history, there's genetics, there's diet, there's, there's experience, there's all these things that come to play when somebody takes something. I and mean, somebody can say, oh, yo, that was bad acid. I took that and it was a bad trip. That's bullshit. They had some stuff inside of themselves. And in, in my humble opinion, there's no such thing as a bad trip. I, I've gained the most from some of my darkest experiences. And one of the things when I, when I take people, you know, I, ayahuasca really needs to be done in a circle, in a ceremony. I don't think it's healthy at all to do it by yourself. They'll give it to me by myself in the jungle during the course of a 10-day dieta, but that's because I got all these years of experience now, and I can handle it like that. It really needs to be done in a group setting that's supportive and all that. But, but you know, when you go through that experience and you have those really profound moments and you have, you know, death moments and rebirth moments, and you always have to embrace the whole experience. Like one of the things, one of my old coaches, she would call some of these people granola eaters. And they're like, you know, I, I just want to see the light and I just want to be the light and I just want to bring Crunchy. everybody to bliss. Yeah, and <laughs> crunchy for sure. Um, but just seeing the light is bullshit. You have to experience the light in the dark. If you can't, you can't have the dark without the light. You can't have the light without the dark. You have to have both. And and to me, the the journey is always back toward the center. To me, the universe is always seeking balance. So if you do enough of this work for long enough you'll find that you can navigate the dark and the light equally well. And one of the things I tell people, everybody um, that I work with, with the ayahuasca, I do a very thorough screening of them. I have a whole questionnaire, I interview them, and I turn a lot of people away because there can be some very, very dangerous interactions with serotonin overload. You go into convulsions, you can die. Or you, you, you think, oh, I'm going to make this cocktail and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And, and you, you don't know any better. And there are contraindications and people die that way. And then, of course, it kind of gives psychedelics a bad name. Well, like throwing some brumancia in there or something like that. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a purist when it comes to ayahuasca. I mean, like, um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an addicted to, to, to write, we call it writer's crack. And when I'm really going with a, with a book, I have my coffee in the morning and I make myself wait until 4.20. Then I take a few hits of weed and I'll get like a whole two or three more pages out of it like that. And it, you know, it works like that. But when I'm getting ready to do ceremonies and I'm getting ready to do ayahuasca, I stop all that stuff at least a week before, sometimes longer, and go into it as clean as you can. Because you want to be as clean and as unaltered as you can in order to really embrace that experience. And in the jungle, you know, they call it La Purga, which is the purge. And you can have it coming out both ends and out your nose and your ears and your eyes and everything else, right? But it's clearing you out. 
and if you put other things in there, you're you're messing with the whole thing. You really need to be clean about it. And then all the other in the jungle, they say ayahuasca is the mother of all the other plants. So I've worked with most of, if not all, I mean, I may have missed a few, but pretty much what they tell me, I've worked with pretty much almost all of their plants together during the course of the 10-day dieta. And they're synergistic. And, and, and this stuff, this neurochemistry and stuff that they know is literally prehistoric. It's, it's tried and true for, you know, for a long period of time. So, um, even you mentioned though, the light and the dark, I mean, those are concepts that start showing up after Zoroastrianism and we know Zoroastrianism is tied to Homa. We know Homa and Soma are cousins of one another. And we know that there's some psychoactive concoction, uh, happening there. So literally this idea of dark and light and that being some sort of, personal theology or philosophy or whatever most likely goes back to psychoactive compound ingestion. Um, and that's not to say that there's anything less enlightening about it. It's just that I think that a lot of people wonder about some of those concepts and it's true. You, you mean, you can't have one with, without the other. It's, it's no. necessary. Yeah, and and in, in in many indigenous cultures, they don't think of you know in Western culture everything's like light or dark or left and right, and you know I mean even look at us now, so politically divided and all that crap, right? But in, in most indigenous cultures, they don't see things in those extremes. They see it as a as a continuum. It's a matter of degrees. If you're into you know passing through something of lower consciousness, it'll be darker. If you're getting rising up toward the light, then you're getting lighter, you're getting higher frequencies, but you really need to be able to navigate both of them. One of the things I tell people, if I'm going to lead them in a ceremony is that I will go anywhere in the dark with them. I tell them, I look them in, I look them in the eye and I'll say, I will go absolutely anywhere in the dark with you because I've been there and I've done that. And it really makes a difference. But you can't deny it. If you deny it, it just gets worse. You know, you, you can't deny the reality of it. And if you can navigate the light and the dark equally, the other thing that has happened to me in the jungle and in my life now is that in our culture, okay, we'll say, um, I'm either sleeping or I'm waking or I'm dreaming or I'm having a vision. Well, we separate all those things. But in indigenous cultures, there's no difference. It's all about different states of consciousness. And it's learning to navigate them. So what's happened to me in the jungle with these with these plant dietas is uh, my dreams started interplaying with my visions. And my dreams and my visions filtered into each other. And then my dreams and my visions filtering into each other started filtering into my everyday life, my waking life. And so my life became more dreamlike. And when it became more dreamlike, I became more free. So it's just a matter of a continuum, and it's a matter of navigating altered states of consciousness. And when I get crap from people about, oh, yeah, you know, you're getting high and doing drugs, I'll go, wait a minute. Did, did you drink any coffee this morning? Yeah, guess what? You had an altered state. Did you have a headache? Did you take an aspirin? Guess what? You had an altered state. Did you dream last night? Guess what? You had an altered state, right? Because when you're in a dreaming state, it's real to you. In that moment, 
you know, you're flying on a purple horse with pink polka dots and, and, and you know, breathing underwater and all flying through the cosmos. When that's happening to you in that moment, that's real to you. And, and that gets back to the whole idea of radical subjectivity. So everybody has different experiences and some substances talk to people more than others. I, I did a, a, you know, a fair amount of ketamine back in the day. Ketamine doesn't really talk to me. I gave it a good shot. And oddly enough, that's one of the ones where I've noticed from talking with people that don't have a history with psychedelics, find that yeah. one most helpful just after like a few of these sessions, you know? So mm -hmm. um, I think there's something there with that one. But yeah, I agree. I'm not a big ketamine guy. But to, to your point, I'm a psilocybin guy it just mushrooms yeah. and me it's like home when i get in that zone I, there's nothing that i don't ever have to worry about freaking out no matter the dosage or whatever it's just home it just it's comfortable um and i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because i'm never gonna have one of those scary trips that like is kind of transformational in some way either do you know what i'm saying absolutely here's the thing one of the things i discovered over time is after doing a lot of ayahuasca, I can take mushrooms and go right into ayahuasca space. Boom. Just like that. I mean, it's like, if you don't know the door is there, you can't go through it. But when, once you discover the door is there, you can go through it. And, and, you, and, and, and as I was saying, um, different things affect different people. There's nothing wrong. I think ketamine has some very good uses. It just doesn't talk to me personally. Just like way back, I tried heroin a few times. It just didn't talk to me. It's like, give me the acid. I don't want the I don't, it just, just doesn't talk to me. I don't think Everybody's that one talks different. to you anyways. I think that one puts you to sleep. Yeah, um, well, that's what I felt like. Yeah. I felt like I was super drunk. I, I played with, you know, PCP. I, I, there was a period when I was really young when I got everything I could get my hands on. I'm lucky I'm still alive, frankly. Um, and even before all that, I was sniffing glue and hyperventilating and anything I could do, you know, to get high, which you sound good. like Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia or something. Oh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so but actually, to your point with the ayahuasca and going in, into the psilocybin space, I've never done ayahuasca, so I can't speak to this, but I know psilocin, uh, or psilocin, people pronounce it differently. When psilocybin breaks down into your gut, it turns into psilocin. I think that's like 4HO. DMT, so it's actually pretty close uh, chemical structure to DMT. Yeah, and and you know, as I mentioned earlier, different people bring different experiences to to what they have. You know, one of the things I'll talk about when I'm teaching writing is, let's say you're going to write a story about domestic abuse. Is it best to write the story from the mother who's getting abused from her point of view? Maybe it's better to write it from the little kid who's hiding in the corner of the kitchen under the kitchen table, terrified. What's the best place? Because what do you bring to it? So you can have a story or an experience. And depending on anybody's personal uh, history, we'll have different reactions to it. I, I was teaching a, a workshop one time when I was doing an analysis, breakdown analysis of the film Thelma and Louise. There's an underlying thing in the plot. I won't get into all the details, but in the plot about the Susan Sarandon, Sarandon character who got raped. Well, one of the ladies in, that was in my workshop had a big breakdown because she had been raped. 
and she and she started flipping out and people didn't know what was going on and it was because she had been raped so she really it, it hit that nerve with her whereas other people who don't know what it's like to be raped they were like what's going on with her right so the, the point i'm saying is that what we bring to it what we have inside of us has a lot to do with how our background is and how how we were raised and what we were experienced you know i grew up in dorchester it's a tough neighborhood in boston and i experienced a lot of violence i, I witnessed it i was in the middle of it i was part of it um it, it brought a lot to my experience and, and like even when i tell people i'll go anywhere in the dark with you it's because of some of the things i've experienced not to mention some of the demons that have come up inside of me uh, working with ayahuasca and, and going after it and going after the shadow work as opposed to you know so many people now they just want to get loaded they want to get drunk or stoned out or drunk and stoned and all that because they don't want to face what is inside of them they're terrified of it when you take ayahuasca and even you know a lot of psychedelics for that, that matter i like to think of it as you're, you're calling it out on your terms you know when i go to the jungle and i'm ready whether I go to the light or the dark, and I've been to both of them, I'm like, bring it. What do you got? Show me, right? Sometimes I get my ass kicked big time. Sometimes I go into blissful experiences. But it's all part of it, and you learn to navigate those very intense altered states. And then you find yourself in a real-life situation where things are really going nuts, and it's very surreal. And you're like, well, okay, I got, I've been through worse than this with ayahuasca, so I can handle this. And you can handle it because you've been really, you know, jerked around psychologically every which way you can think of. And ayahuasca, I'm sure you've had this on mushrooms too. Things can come fast and furious. And you can't always figure out what's going on at the time. And if you struggle with it, that's where you're really going to the dark. So you got to roll with it, sort of try to figure it out. But Another thing I'm always preaching to people is that in many respects, it's the time between your experiences that are more important than the experiences themselves. If, if you have a revelation, so many people have a revelation under ayahuasca or mushrooms and they think, oh, there it is. Okay, I'm cured. No, you're not. You've just been shown it. It's going to come back and it's going to test you. And the real challenge comes in day-to-day -day life when, when you get challenged by different things and experiences in people. And if you're navigating properly and you've done your work, you will continue to get tested till you really overcome that particular wound. Uh, I like to think of it that way. You know, the, one of the definitions of shamanism is the wounded healer. You, you know, your shadow will recognize itself in other people. It'll project itself onto those other people so you don't find it in yourself. And it's trying to help you in its own way because it hasn't had guidance. So it projects it. So you can go through a period of time seeing that in other people and judging them. And then when you when you finally really discover it within yourself and you embrace it and, and figure those things out, then those people who you once judged, you finally have compassion for them. And you can actually be of assistance to help them find it within themselves if they're willing to do the work. But you really need to be willing to face the, the light and the dark. And sometimes the light has been truly terrifying in its own right. You know, it's like I've been right on the threshold where I don't think I can take anymore, and I hope this never ends at the same time. And it seems like some of the best experiences I've ever had when I was having the most intense physical discomfort uh, being really held in that place.
and it's considered, you know, in archetypal language, um, ayahuasca is considered the dark feminine. And, um, if, you know, uh, without going, this is in a lot of my books and all that, and without going off way off on too much of a story, but I almost killed myself once when I, I took 13 Hawaiian baby Woodrose seeds with chocolate and honey and nine grams of mushrooms. And I was depressed and I didn't realize how depressed I was at the time. And I was under a lot of pressure. I was a manager with a, in a big corporation and I had to fire somebody. And I went off the deep end and I, I almost killed myself. But when the dust was settled from all that, I came out a new person. But it, it took some time to integrate that one. And I don't recommend it because I barely made it through. Um, so it's just something that really needs the ultimate respect. Uh, as I say, a lot of younger people, they just go off and they do all these different things and try these different combinations. And so many of them now, um, they're, they're, like I say, it's it's the whole girl-whitest thing. And and uh, no disrespect to, to, to psychedelic integration specialists, but man, it seems like these days you can't swing a cat around a room without hitting one. And um, I know someone, a good friend of mine, and his daughter went through this whole certification program. And then suddenly she was in a, uh, trying to help somebody with a journey, and she, she didn't really know what to do because, great, she had a certification, but she didn't have any experience, you know? So Yeah, I mean, I always, so <laughs> I'll just jump in just real quick here. So I, because I have OCD, when I have gone to therapy and talked to therapists, uh, whether it be psychiatrists, psychologists, whatever, it's almost like, um, I don't know, I don't, it's like offensive the way that they approach it to you trying to like a lot of them will ask questions like a good therapist will just listen to you and ask questions and maybe add a little bit of an input or whatever but the ones that like talk and tell you what you're doing and it's like you don't know what the fuck you're talking about <laughs> like like you might have like first of all you know there's so many issues here like we don't fully understand consciousness we don't fully understand these neuroses and the mechanisms behind them and how they um embed themselves in our mind you know and for me uh to be talked down to like I always thought like I thought you don't even maybe you just need somebody who's intelligent that has OCD to help other people with OCD if that makes sense like you you have the person like I've thought about maybe trying to do it but I don't know. I just don't have time in my life right now to get any sort of certifications or go back to school or whatever. But and that's unfortunate. But it's like, you know, you do need that specialization if you want to help people in that regard in like a medical sense. But um, I don't know, man. It's just very tough because it's like we're relying on these people, yet it seems like they don't have a great grasp on what's going on. Um, so um, it's tough. It's a tough tough thing we're all just trying to do our best i understand that but um yeah i mean to your point about all these people and people getting older too i mean who do you think who do we look to now i mean terrence is gone a lot of people mm -hmm. are getting older uh shulgin's gone you know a lot of the old chemists are gone i mean the even the top guy right now who would you say is probably like david nichols and he's getting up there in age too 
Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, who, who are we looking, you know, up to, I guess would be somebody like me, who's not even necessarily like 40 yet, but is still, you know, am I, I hope I'm not the voice. Cause I mean, I'm not ready to, to, to take on something like that. And I listen to other podcasts. I'm not like super impressed. Like who's the person out there? Who are the people out there? If do you have anybody that we should be looking to? Exactly. One of the things I'm doing these days is I'm, I'm shying away from the general community overall because there are so many wannabes and without sounding like the old cranky bastard that I'm becoming, they're rookies. And you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a self-educated man. So when I started to really get serious about my writing, I learned from Ray Bradbury. I learned from Charles Schultz. I learned from other big names directly from them. And one of my favorite little brags is that I was teaching English literature PhDs how to write fiction before I ever got my associate's degree in English because I went right to the source, the guys who were doing it. In terms of, uh, you know, psychedelics, like I mentioned a little while ago, I've got over 50 years of experience with lots of different things. So I know lots of things. And, and I worked with a personal coach for five or six years and all the people pretty much who she was working with, who were working with ayahuasca, she told them all to stop, except me. She told me to keep going. And I spent five or six years coming to terms with the things and the techniques she was using to help me dig out parts of my shadow. And then the ayahuasca work. And I finally, after about five, six years, figured out that it was, it was the same process. There were different tools. So I can help people without psychedelics. It just happens to be my path. And the ayahuasca has changed my life in, in dramatic ways. So I, I'm at this point where I'm old enough and enough of my mentors have gone that I can consider myself to be an authority on it. And I've written books on it, but I don't have a formal education. I don't have a, a certification. And I think that anybody who thinks that they could give me a certification, I'll bet I could teach them. And that's just talking from my experience more than anything else, you know? Um, so I, I, I don't, you know, people say, oh, so-and-so is going to go talk. I, I don't really want to hear it. So, um, but the certification thing, it's like, obviously these things aren't even legal. Um, I mean, unless you're in what, Oregon or uh, California. Yeah, so, I, I yeah. mean, even then it's not, it doesn't seem so stable, but um, what do you do with the certificate? Cause like, even let's just say hypothetically thought experiment, they lift the ban on psychedelics for more research and the, they're going to start allowing some, you know, um, psychiatrists, I guess, uh, prescribe mm -hmm. stuff. Um, what's going to happen to all these people with these certificates too, because it's not like it's not like you went to school for medicine. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I'm? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've taken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people on their first LSD trips. Well, when you do the work enough, and now I've also worked with hundreds. I've, I've led ceremonies since like 2006. So what's that? 16, 20, 17 years, right? So I've seen a lot. I've experienced a lot and the people that I worked with were very experienced. So I learned and I see things and I see the patterns and I know what 
could happen and what might not happen. And one of the things I do when I screen people is I get a really good sense of them and I develop a rapport with them so that they trust me. So if they do get into a tough spot, I can kind of get in their face and say, hey, here I am. You're okay. I'm with you. You know, and I've had to go through some really dark things with people. And it's okay because I've been there before, um, not only with myself, but um, with other people. So I've, I've got, it's, it's experience. And as I mentioned a while back, when I started all this stuff, nobody had any experience with anything. There was no, it was all illegal, blah, blah, black market. And sometimes you didn't know what you were, get, were getting, but it's not as bad as, as it is now with all the fentanyl, fentanyl crap and all that. And now I know people who are um, brilliant chemists who have uh, testing facilities and I can go to them if there's something that comes up and I can go to them and say, hey, is this the real deal or not? And then I know that if I help anybody do anything, that they're getting something that's good and not some freaking poison that's going to kill them, right? Well, so that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's responsibility. And and one of the things I'm always saying is that when I'm leading people and I'm taking them to an ayahuasca experience, I am responsible for everybody in that room. And I have to really pay attention. And I have a good crew that works with me that helps me to keep things in order. And I have people who don't take anything, who babies, who sit, they're sitters. And they watch out because things can happen. You can have the most chilled person in the world and they could be have some deep trauma that they don't know about and it can come out. And then, you know, it's on, right? And even that 5-MEO episode from Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, that dude flailing around like a fish in water, like, dude, get that guy away from the water. Like, I mean, I mean, I don't understand what was happening there, but... It, 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 it can happen and it, and it can happen in ayahuasca. And there are things, there was a, some poor girl, I don't know, five or six years ago, she was in Peru in the jungle and they did some work with tobacco and the nicotine content was really high. And, you know, they use nicotine to, for, for bug killers. It, 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 it makes the bugs, their lungs like fill up and suffocate. And this woman was very, a slight woman. She only weighed like 90 pounds or something. And they gave her some tobacco stuff and she died from the tobacco. Her lungs Jesus. filled up and she suffocated, right? Jesus, that's crazy. I mean, well, I know, I mean, nicotine itself is actually a great neurotransmitter as much as um, it's also, you know, most people, the way that they're getting it into their bodies is not the best, but... Mm-hmm. Um, the compound itself, I don't think is the worst thing from what I understand, but yeah, you mix it with tobacco or, you know, you like, as you're mentioning too, a lot of these indigenous tobaccos are, there's different strains that have different levels of different compounds in there too. So yeah, nicotine aristica from the jungle is, has like five to seven times the nicotine of the, the crap that they have up here. And I don't, I, you know, I, I smoke. Those are the real natural spirits. Yeah, 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 exactly. But, you know, when I was younger, when I finally quit smoking, I was smoking two and a half packs of Marlboros a day. Um, And it's easy to get hooked back into it. But the only way I use tobacco now is ceremonially. And even then, I don't inhale it. And even then, I felt myself getting toxic just from absorbing it, like, you know, through the mucous membranes in my mouth when you do a lot of it. 
So um, again, it's something you really got to know what you're doing. And the, the people that I work with and that I've worked in like four different traditions, but mostly in one tradition. And it's, it's the oldest and the purest one that I know of all of them. And they, they're very respectful and they're very aware of what they're giving you and how they're giving it to you. And they're very, very calibrated in the dosages and all that. Um, it's something that needs to pay attention to. And it's just so easy for somebody to, to, to get things and go, come on, let's go have fun and let's party. And they start mixing it up. And I've seen a number of people who didn't come back. They, they, they left the planet. And that's if you're getting the right, even the right shit, right? So like, you know, you have the issues of understanding dose and dosage and the plateaus and everything on a lot of these substances. But then you also have, like, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that there's people putting fentanyl and all sorts of powders, whether it be cocaine or MDMA or all sorts of messed up shit now uh, that they didn't have when I was younger. And that wasn't even that long ago. So like 20 yeah. and 20, 25 years ago, that wasn't even happening. So, um, yeah, you gotta be careful. I've lost three close friends to, um, either fentanyl lace stuff or just, uh, opioid stuff in general. And, um, it's brutal. It's really brutal. Test your stuff. Um, again, if you're doing powders, um, and yeah, just, just, you know, knowledge is the most powerful thing. So if you know a lot about these compounds or let's say, you know, you're really into cannabis, you really start looking into, you know, the growing and the whole culture of it and just understanding everything. If you're really into this thing, you know, do your homework, do the research, put in the time it's, it's worth it. And, um, you know, I think that it gives you even deeper insights into these things than just, Hey, pop this thing, have an experience. And that's it. Yeah, you got to know who you're getting it from. You got to know that there's somebody you can trust. Just like, you know, you down in the jungle, there's a lot of desperation. People will drag you off. Oh, I'll get you all the ayahuasca you want, or I'll give you a ceremony of this or that. And they're just looking to get your money or take advantage of you. And there's not any integrity there. That's why you should write be... a book at Wrong Turn, Ayahuasca Circle. <laughs> yeah, it never ends. I mean, I got to the point where I was not going to do it anymore. It's like, you know, there's that old Alan Watts saying, um, you've gotten the message, you can hang up the phone now. And in, in, I'm in a constant state of integration. If I never did anything ever again, I'd be fine. But right about when I was ready to just kind of bag it, because I didn't really need it, is when people started coming to me and saying, well, you help me to, to use it. And then I just had the realization that, shit, most of my mentors are passing away. And I got all this knowledge and all this experience that's been given to me. It's kind of an obligation to, to like I said earlier, to carry the torch. And it's important, like, like working with you here and other things that I've done that get good knowledge out to people so that they're really paying attention. It's not something to be played with. It's not. Oh, I mean, I'm looking to you. That's what I was saying earlier. Like, uh, I mean, other than you though, like there's really not that many people that are accessible to people. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, Paul Stamets is out there. Um, you know, the big dogs are out there, but are they accessible? No, they're not. Even for somebody like me who has a show where people like this kind of stuff, where they listen, still not really that accessible. So, um, 
in that case, I do think that you are super valuable because you're um, you're a nice dude. Like I feel like tomorrow, if one of your books blew up and became a bestseller, and I emailed you, hey man, you want to come back on the show? You wouldn't, you know, not respond or anything like that. But there have been many examples of that exact thing happening since I've started the show with other topics and people and stuff like that. So um, that's why I appreciate you. I know what kind of person no, you are. I, 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 I don't forget where I come from. I don't forget my bros and my homies. And you're doing important work with this show. And I need to support that. And I always like to think of it as um, mutually. It's almost like in some respects, we need each other. Like, you're great. Thank you for having me on the show. You're plugging my books also. So you're plugging my books and plugging my writings and my writings and my books are along the same lines of the work that you're doing. So we're helping each other out and we're teaming up and we're showing a unified frontier and, and having a, a forum that people can listen to things that have some integrity with them, you know? Um, and that's the thing that makes me really, really carry this forward. And I, and I have to work really hard at walking a fine line between what's legal and what's not legal and what can be incriminating and what can't be incriminating, you know, um, you know, all my work for anybody who wants to know publicly, all my work is ayahuasca is in the jungle. All of my major insane drug experiences were 20 years ago or whatever the, 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 uh, the statute of limitations are passed, you know, but, uh, it's important to know. And I always, uh, like to tell people, they'll say, oh my God, you know, you're so brave to go to the jungle, blah, blah, blah. And I go, I'm not brave at all. I just couldn't not go. I had to go. And then they would say, well, you know, thank you for going because, you know, I could never do that. And then I tell them, well, guess what? I went for you. And if I'm doing my job as a writer, I can write about those experiences and the things that I learned and people can live vicariously through what I've written to get a sense of it. And maybe they don't have to do some of the dumb shit that I've done. Because Lord knows I've had my share of dumb shit, right? And if somebody can... Uh... Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I mean, we've all... <laughs> I'm sure we've all got our own stories of dumb shit. And, uh, yeah. But no, but I appreciate that about you is you do, you know, you are sharing that knowledge. And for somebody like me, I'll never say never and I'll never say I'll never go down there. But that's just not... I'm a silent darkness, introspection kind of a guy. Um you know, I'm not, again, I'm not saying no, I just, this is what I would like to, if I were to try uh, DMT for the first time, it would be at home and comfort, you know, somebody near me who I love and trust or something along those lines and uh, maybe fire up a, a, an NN DMT bowl or something like that. Um, that's how I would probably do it if I were to do it the first time. I'm not a fan of smoking it. And to me, it, it's like a sound bite for ayahuasca. And I would, me, again, I would love to, I just, I, I'm not there. I just, with my little guy and where I'm at in my life, I don't think I could get down there. So I, I, I hear what you're saying. I just, so do you think that that's something that like, if I ever do try it, I should do ayahuasca first or. As opposed to. Yeah. Like smoking it or whatever. Well, I mean, you can smoke it and you can, you know, you can see the self-transforming machine elves and you can have your, your cartoon character experiences and blah, blah, and all that and get a taste of it. But ayahuasca, 
in the way that I've been doing it and the way most people have been doing it, it's about a five-hour experience. So you get to really delve into things and, and deal with the things that come up. And, and, and when I do it, we'll meet before the ceremony and we'll, we'll talk about our intentions and then we'll dose. And we calibrate the dose up front and then about every hour, we'll say, okay, we're an hour in. If you want more, now is the time. So people can go as far and as high as they want. Some people really fly hard, which I did for years. So just real quick, not to, to cut you off, we can keep, I just. That's okay, it's okay. Put, put, put me in this in terms of like, what would you be, is, is there plateaus? Does it go up and down? Is it like mushrooms? I know if you're really deep into it and you stare at like something intricate, like, um, you know, one of these you know, mosques that are beautiful or some puzzle mm -hmm. or something like that. It'll, t it'll catapult you, you know, it'll, your, your eyes do that thing where you like zero in on it and start to fuck it. You know, you know what I'm saying? So like, is it something that's like that where it'll occasionally pop in and out or is it something that's constantly happening the whole time? Like take me, take me there. One of the things I love about it is that it's unpredictable. And there have been times when I've been so high that it didn't matter whether my eyes were open or closed. It made no difference at all. I was tripping to the light fantastic with colors that you can't even describe, colors you don't see in quote-unquote normal life. And you fly really hard. It can come in waves. Uh, I, there, was, there have been times when I take like three good doses and not much happens. And then I'll take like a quarter of a dose and get my brains totally blown out. Right, you just you can't tell, and there's there's so many things. Like I was mentioning earlier, there's 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 diet, there's genetics, there's physiology, uh, there's sensitivity. You know, generally speaking, this is just a generalization, but generally speaking, women are more sensitive than guys are. Um, so you you can go, you you can totally be gone from the room and gone from the planet and gone from God knows where, and then suddenly you come back. I was. Uh, Years ago, I was, uh, in fact, the first time I was in the jungle and um, the shaman was talking about, um, he had, he looked around and he saw that there were all these like PhDs that were coming to see him. And here he is, a guy in bare feet and ragged pants. And he was trying to figure out, wow, they're all coming to me, right? So one of them asked him, you know, what, what is it? Here we are, we're all these educated PhDs and we're coming to you. And um, what, what, what is the problem? And he was trying to articulate it and he, he got mixed up between English and Spanish and Quechua, which is the language of the, the Inca empire. And what came out of his mouth was your heads up your ass. And he caught himself. And then he, but he was trying to tell this story and he, and he couldn't even finish the story because he was laughing so hard. And he got me to laugh because he was laughing so hard. And it took him about 10 minutes to finish the story because he was laughing so hard. And I was laughing so hard that I lost my breath. And it sent me off into like this whole other dimension. I was gone. I was, I was out of the Maloka for, I don't know how long because I was, I was breathless. I was laughing so hard. It was so funny the way he told it and the, and the fact that he was laughing so hard trying to get the story out. And it sent me into a whole nother place. So you can hit different places and you can hit different archetypes. And um, the language is not rational 
uh, linear language. Like right now, you and I are talking, we're communicating, and we're stringing words into sentences, and we're, I'm telling you these things, and then you're listening to each word that I say, and you're putting it back together in your mind. Well, in the ayahuasca experience, the, the language is very complex. It's visual, it's uh, emotional, it's, it's physiological. So generally speaking, when you go through your everyday life, you're primarily left brain oriented. We need to do our jobs. We need to drive cars. We need to do math. We need to function. We need to do all these logical things. And then when we go to sleep at night, if we slip into the dreaming state, what happens is our left, that rational brain shuts down and the right brain comes out to play. And you get all this complex imagery and emotional stuff and uh, all of those things, right? And they come out and it's not, it's, a, it's an emotional, conceptual language. It's like that side of your brain is putting on a play to try to comprehend or communicate with the other side of you. Have you ever heard of the bicameral mind theory? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I was going to say this kind of, kind of leak, because I'm actually reading it right now, because we're going to have one of my buddies who's a glass blower who's been on before. He's reading it, so we were going to talk about it. But yeah, uh, this kind of just reminded me of that right now, what you're talking about. Yeah, so when you wake up and, and you wake up from a dream, you have to try to remember the dream if you're trying to work with them, and you have to remember it in reverse. Like you just woke up and this this just happened. Then, oh, well, what happened before that one? And you have to go backwards to try to make sense out of it with your left brain, right? So there, there's the waking consciousness, left brain logic. There's the right brain dreaming, conceptual, emotional, spiritual aspects of, of who we are, which does not follow rationality. So there's those two. And when you wake up from, from dreaming and you try to make sense of it with what, what happened, you know, going backwards. Well, when you drink ayahuasca, both sides of your brain are on at the same time. And you're trying to figure it out. And if you struggle, people who are are called uh, uh, intellectually centered, if they control their reality with their mind and they're used to doing that, and then they drink ayahuasca, that shit doesn't work anymore. They will go to hell because they fight with it and they struggle with it and they can't, they can't surrender. And, and it's not so much that um, the best analogy I've heard is you sort of want to surrender, but not fully surrender. You want to dance with it. But it still comes to you so fast and furious and imagery and, and colors and patterns and, and other perceptions are, are tweaked. And there's the telepathy happens and all these other things happen. And when you finally come down from it and you start to figure out what's happened to you and what's happening, that is really what integration is, is making sense of your experience. It's why I always say that in, in, in many respects, it's between the experiences are more important than the experiences themselves, because that's when your mind can start to make sense of what happened. Now, when you do one ayahuasca ceremony, there's integration. When I lead ceremonies, we usually do three in a row. When, when we're in the jungle, we'll do five over a 10-day period roughly every other night. Sometimes we'll do two in a row. If you get to be an old dog like me, they'll, they'll bring it to you once or twice during the day by yourself. Well, what that does, and then you're on that very, very restricted diet. 
So what that does is it really makes it a 10-day ayahuasca trip. And you're integrating for, for, for hours and days and weeks afterwards, sometimes even years. Sometimes suddenly you realize, oh, that what happened to me four years ago in that vision and that ceremony, oh, that's what that means. And it connects with this other thing. There's a, there's a bigger arc that goes on. And it continues. That's why I always say I'm, I'm in a constant state of integration all the time. And when I lead ceremonies, I, I always took a full dose up front sometimes more and just blew my brains out. But when I'm leading, I'll take about a third of a dose because I want to be in the zone with everybody. But I need to be conscious and coherent because I'm responsible for all of them. So, yeah, I, I mean, can't... I in the early days of my OCD, I definitely would have gone to hell. Um, but mm -hmm. since I lived in that hell in reality, it's almost like psychedelics were like a safe haven. So I don't, it's almost, I think it would be reverse. <laughs> like, I really don't think people know how bad OCD is when it's bad in your mind. Like it's probably, um, one of the worst things having to constantly think things that aren't true that mm -hmm. play over and over and over and over like a fucking yeah. broken projector. And, um, it's debilitating, uh, in a lot of ways. And, um, sure. so living through that hell going into an experience, that's why I think it's their pro it's my point is, I think that's why it's therapeutic is when you're living in that hell and you can't get out of it, these compounds are probably one of the only things that can break you out of that, like mind loop or mind trap, in my opinion. And that what, that's what makes them so successful for people that are like treatment resistant because, um, you know, being able to like escape hell for just even a little bit gives your brain that like respite and allows whatever, um, you know, neuroplasticity is happening or whatever. So, you bet. yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's why like when that happens, and I know you can relate to this with the OCD and, and many of us with the, with the monkey mind, which is which is related, there's, 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 there's degrees of it, right? Well, I always tell people when they've had tough experiences like that is that in essence, what happens is you get mugged by your shadow. You get mugged. I mean, it's like going down a dark alley and it pops out and, you know, kicks the shit out of you and knifes you and takes your wallet and your girlfriend or whatever else. Right. And it's so when you when you consciously go after this, particularly in the jungle, but in good, deep, deep psychedelic experiences, you're basically calling it out on your terms. You're saying, bring it. Come on. What do you got? Show me. Right. And if you're doing it with someone who's a good guide, who's watching out for you, like, like when you're doing an ayahuasca ceremony where you're in a, a circle where you're protected, then you can be vulnerable. You can be safe because you have people with more experience watching out for you. So you can flip out if you have to, but you're safe. And what happens in the circle is when some people get, if they get really too much, they get too loud and they're flopping around and all that. If they get really bad, we take them out of the circle. We bring them to a completely separate area and we have a sitter sit with them and let them go through that part of their process until they come back to earth a little bit. And then if that then doesn't we'll work, we beat the shit out of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? They don't need help because they're doing that for themselves anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they're kicking their own asses yeah well i just told somebody today i told my acupuncturist today we're our own worst enemies anyway right 
But when you understand that and you realize that whether, whether it's a division or a dreaming or somewhere in between, and sometimes my life has gotten so surreal that it's a matter of learning how to navigate that state that has a completely different set of rules than, than quote unquote normal life. You know, when, when, it's, when, I, when I go to the jungle, as soon as I leave, for me, I'm stepping into a whole nother reality. The rules change. I mean, first public transportation, flying, airport, going through security, blah, blah, blah. Then you get to freaking Peru, where I go. And then it's you're speaking Spanish and it's a different language. And then you're third world and you're dealing with third world people. And, you know, you you have all this uh, poverty and, and people, people who've got nothing who will still literally give you the shirt off their back. And then you go into the jungle and you're on a restricted diet and you're not near any, there's no electronics, there's no electricity, there's no internet, you are in nature. And then, and then you know, you're doing this very restricted diet and then you're taking these different plants and you're getting altered in ways that most people can't even begin to imagine, which is one of the reasons why I write about it, because I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to communicate things that are non-rational in a way that people can relate to it. So those people who are not, blessed to be able to go like I've been able to go and spend so much time in the jungle and get a sense of it and maybe learn something about themselves for all the work that I've done, you know, for everybody else. You really do. For a lot of people, though, just the no technology in the jungle would be psychedelic enough for, I think, a lot of people, they'd probably start flipping out after that, just alone, just not having, yeah. Yeah, you you know, everybody's on their cell phones, right? You know, you you go somewhere... you know, six people sitting around a table and they're all looking at their cell phones. Hello, right? Get out and get out in nature. And the other thing is when you're doing these ayahuasca dietas, other than meeting in the maloca to do the ceremonies, you're all by yourself in your, in your tombo. It's an open air hut. They bring you your food twice a day. Um, and it's not fun food at all. And you're by yourself. You can't blame your shit on anybody. You start to go psycho. And I've gone psycho in the jungle more than once. There's nobody to blame. There's no place to escape. I can't turn on the TV. I can't drink a beer or take a shot of whiskey or smoke a joint. None of that. So you got to sit in your shit and go, what the hell's going on here? Right? There's no escape. And that's part of it. Because how else are you going to learn? And then when you overcome these these traumas and these things that... that um, you know, distract you. I mean, life is full of distractions. We're in this freaking, you know, consumer culture and marketing and, you know, beautiful babes with big boobs and Taylor Swift and, you know, football. And... Well, hold on. Some of these things aren't that bad, bro. I don't know. Oh, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying they're bad. <laughs> I'm not joking. At all. No, I'm no, joking. no. I, 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 love, I, I don't listen to her music. I think she's amazing. Uh-oh. But the point Dude, is. Dude, my is, wife is like. For what fish is to me, that's what Taylor Swift is to my wife. So oh, I, res- yeah, no, no. I respect it. I respect it. Oh, yeah. No, no. What a great distraction. But, I mean, if you're trying to figure out what's, what's, what's really eating at you, and all you want to do is, you know, watch Taylor Swift, and, and not just Taylor Swift. I mean, you know, smoke smoke a bunch of freaking dope and, you know, have a couple of shots of whiskey. and With Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Yeah. yeah <laughs> we, we all wish, right? But, but, and they're, they're great. They're beautiful distractions. 
But if you really want to get work done, it has to come a point. Like, like when I'm working on a book, when I'm doing my writing, when I get up in the morning, I won't turn on the damn cell phone. I will not go on the internet until I get a substantial amount of work done. Because if I do that before I start to try to get any work done, I get caught up in all that shit and I'm distracted. But oh, no, no. I love Taylor Swift. She's, she's, she's a babe of babes. I, I, and I don't even listen to her music, just what she does and how she stands up. And... I mean, she's, she's a talented musician. I watched my wife maybe watch this documentary where she's in the studio. Uh-huh. Um, she writes all of her own stuff and she collaborates with people. And, you know, it's not, you know, for me as a musician myself, that's all you can really ask for these days is somebody to be musically proficient and understand like music theory and songwriting and stuff like that. Uh, because there's just so much garbage and digital stuff and with, yeah. um, you know, all the stuff from, you know, the voice, um, you know, uh, being able to change pitch pretty easily and stuff you can do in a lot of these programs and stuff. Um, you know, the art of music has kind of been slowly degraded over the years. So, it's I, I think you know this. I'm a, I'm a drummer and a vocalist myself. I've been in rock bands and country rock yeah, bands. We, and I think we bands. talked about this a couple times ago when you were on. But yeah, yeah, Probably. I remember. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But now I sing the Icaros from the jungle. And I and I drum and I sing and I play and I play handpan. And it's all about facilitating the, the healing and the music. Uh, you know, they, they say in the jungle that ayahuasca is the river and the, and the music are the boats that carry you along the river. So I'm been embracing a whole different kind of genuine music. Not that all music is in general genuine, I mean, but I mean, I'm, I'm embracing it for the intention of um, stimulating people's minds that have been opened up by a visionary experience so they can go deep within themselves and find out what needs to be there. But you can get caught up in all of that. Like I said, and, 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 and I'm apologizing again for Taylor Swift. She's a babe. Um, you don't have to apologize, dude. Like, like no, I said, I, I, I mean, you know, I think it's a hot topic right now. People are either like, oh, exactly. you know, screw that, or like, yeah, like I love Taylor Swift, you know, like, yeah. uh, but like I, you know, I've, I've, like I said, I respect musicianship, and she's a musician, so I respect, you know, her music and stuff like yeah. that. So, yeah, you know, I like I said, I that's all. Shit yeah, that's all you can ask for. Can we yeah. pivot here though? Because I did. You and I were going back and forth a little bit. There's something I kind of want to bring up, and I think that yeah, yeah, we'll sure. have, I should brought up Taylor. No, 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 no. That's not why I'm pivoting. I'm just saying from like a little no, bit no. of the, the more of the psychedelic stuff. This actually might sure. still include psychedelics, but um, we were talking. Um, so, like when I started this journey of doing this podcast, like six years ago now, um, I was in a completely different place mentally. Um, I had different, I was in a good place mentally and then it's kind of gone like this over the years, but, um, I was very much into the woo and, um, maybe didn't have my research legs yet and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Um, and you and I were talking and I just, there's just so many like fakes and frauds and, and, um, people peddling things that they're saying are truth, but they don't even really do the research themselves. And then you have people that like stand up for other people that watch one of their videos. And then, you know, there's this, I, I won't even get it, but there's YouTube people that have like armies of people that will just attack you if you criticize anything that they're doing. So, mm-hmm. um, 
I'm I'm in this weird place right now where I'm kind of having this like existential crisis where it's like for me philosophically I felt like I wasn't giving this whole thing I wasn't giving the audience a fair shake too in terms of you can't start with woo and expect that to to be the truth you have to have some level of grounding and reality and science and reason and logic and things like that so like you know whether you're into fringe archaeology well have you ever really read any of the archaeological texts have you looked into the work of people that dedicated their whole lives to this uh you know field and things like that and then you watch one video of graham hancock and you think there's no way they could have built the pyramids well how about reading all the other shit first so over the years i went back and i did all the other side of the work too so right now i'm in this weird place where it's like I do see flaws in like, you know, the philosophy of science and actual science. And uh, that's obvious. Um, but I also, um, but I also, I don't know how to say this, but, but I also kind of like, well, what are we doing with this fringe stuff? Cause some of it's just nonsense. And I, you know, I don't, again, I, I don't know if you have a take on this and maybe you're aware of some of this stuff as well, but I just, it's a weird place. I don't know. You, you, you have to listen very carefully to what they say and how they say it. And even within the bullshit, there can be some truth in there. But the ultimate thing I always end up telling people is if you continue working with all this stuff and you really are sincere, the journey is from the head to the heart. And if you continue this work and you do the shadow work and you gain more and more clarity, you will go from becoming what's called intellectually centered to being heart centered. And you know, in your heart, in, in my opinion, in my universe, in my experience, the way home, so to speak, is through the heart. So you have to listen. And when you do, and you gain more and more clarity, when you when you clearing out the demons, and you're really doing with with intention, and integrity, the shadow work, and you're working with people who have that intention and that integrity, you get increasing clarity, and you begin to rise above the duality, and you actually experience it's the definition of transcendence. I think I've had this discussion a little bit with you before, but. If you think about it, even from a strictly point of view of physics, if you have a pendulum that swings hard to the left, it gets to a point so far to the left that it becomes momentarily weightless and it swings back toward the center and goes way hard to the right where it becomes momentarily weightless and goes back to the center. Well, guess what? The maximum power is in the center. And when you look at going touching just briefly on the sacred geometry stuff what happens in the eye of a storm nothing peace because that's the center so in my humble opinion and in my in my work we're all trying to find our way back to the center the center is where it's at because that's where you find the greatest clarity and when you when you when you become more aware and you overcome the polarities one of my favorite words is a paradox when you overcome, when you solve the puzzle of a paradox, you transcend the polarities and you rise above it. And when you go through, uh, and I know I had this discussion with you before, but I'm going to um, 
repeat this for the benefit of, of you and the audience and all that. If you're thinking just strictly in terms of dimensionality and geometry, a point has no dimension. The next thing that happens when the point moves is a line, first dimension. But if you exist within the first dimension, all you see is points. Then you take that line and you move it, and you have a plane, which is the second dimension. If you exist within the plane, all you see is lines. If you take that plane and you move it the next way to the three dimensional three dimensions, and you're within that three dimensions, all you see are planes. So what that means is we're actually four-dimensional beings. You have to be in the dimension above to perceive what's below it. So when you go up, yeah, I think it was a, it's like Edwin A. Abbott, uh, um, Flatland. Okay, that's a it's a turn of the century. Uh, it's like a love story of dimensions or something. It's this old, oh. old book. It's free. Anybody can go get it right now on the internet. But it's Ed, right. Edwin A. Abbott. Go check. Go, it's okay. called Fl- Flatland. But it's exactly it's exactly what you're describing right now. Yeah, I got a lot of this from Rudolf Steiner. I don't know if you. I wouldn't be surprised. I know we've talked definitely talked about Rudolf Steiner on the show many times. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't yeah, be yeah. surprised if he got it from Edwin A. Abbott as well. So there's another thing that goes on along those lines. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with cymatics. You can take a plane of fine powder and you run a particular frequency through it, and you'll get a mandala-like, a dynamic mandala pattern. If you raise the frequency, that will dissolve into chaos. And if you continue to raise the frequency, you'll get another mandala that's more complex. So for me, that's a model for the evolution of consciousness. I wrote a whole paper about this. I've written books about it. It's the evolution of consciousness because now you're in a higher place, so to speak, a higher vibration, a higher frequency, literally, and it's more complex. So every time you get to a new level, you have a whole new set of problems and you have greater responsibility if you screw up because you know better. So if you continue to rise up, you become more heart-centered. And when you become more heart-centered, then the key word being centered, you get to see more. If you're in a centered state of mind, you're not worried about what happened in the past. You're not worried about what's going to happen in the future. You are in the moment because in the end, all there really is, is the moment, period. If, if you're traumatized by anything, you're worried about it because something that happened to you before. Or you're worried that somebody's going to do something to you and something's going to happen based on what's happened before and your mind's going, bing, it's, 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 it's almost another version of OCD, right? Bing, 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 bing. You're not here. So you'll miss out on what's really, really happening. So the more you go into a situation where you're centered, you're more at peace, you're more aware because you're more fully present. When you're more fully present, you see things in people and see things around you that other people don't see because they're all wrapped up in what's going to happen and what did happen. And then the monkey mind's going nuts, right? Yeah, when I mean, you're in that place. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's tough, bro. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm always as honest as I can be with, you know, our listeners and where I'm at philosophically and what i'm thinking uh-huh. or whatever 
I'm just in a weird place because like I said, I had a, when I started the podcast, I had a spiritual awakening and I'm like, I got to get this knowledge out to the people. And like, I go back and listen to those episodes like, Oh, that's not knowledge. It's just me being dumb. But, um, but now it's like, I, not that I think I'm right now even really, but I just feel like I didn't do enough research before. Now I've read pretty much <laughs> everything you can kind of read on a lot of fringe topics whether it be ufos and esoteric psychedelic stuff and you know you name it and i just a lot of the people that i've propped up and given voices to and like retweeted and whatever the case may be um i no longer <laughs> align with some of their views and in fact i think a lot of it's bullshit um, yeah. But they're still nice people, and I want to be nice to them. But I don't want to promote their work because it's dog shit work, you know. Like so, like what? And I'm just trying to be like as honest as possible. But it's no, like, what do I do in this you know scenario? What? You know, like you know what you already did. You you outgrew them. And, I and try you not have, to think about you, things like that. But yeah, no, no, you outgrew them, man. You have you and 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 I'm going to tell you right now. You need to cut yourself some slack because every point that you have been on your journey so far, you did the best with what you had at your disposal. I mean, dude, I did such dumb shit when I was 18. I did dumb shit when I was 40, right? I did dumb shit when I was 50. I mean, I'll probably still do some dumb shit now, right? I'll be 68 in a couple of months, but I did the best that I could with what I had at my disposal. I talk to people of my generation, you know, I, I get I get teased sometimes. You're a baby boomer. You're a boomer. Yeah, I'm a boomer. What about it? You wouldn't be here if the boomers weren't here and blah, 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 right? But they talk about their parents. Well, my old man was a codeine addict. He went to prison. He got messed up in World War II. Well, I tell them, well, guess what? All he had was codeine and booze and some weed. He didn't have acid. Right? And now look at us in this day and age. Okay, so my old man was he was he was born in I think nineteen twenty nine, right? Well look at me now. I've been on this journey, even even when I was coming up and doing acid, when acid came along, that was still a new thing. And there was acid and there was drinking and there was uppers and there was downers. That was about it. I mean there was heroin, you know, but but now there's you know there's DMT, there's 2CB, there's 5MEO, there's MDMA, there's all this stuff that we have at our disposal to explore our consciousness. We didn't have it back then. So how can I beat myself up, even though I do, how can I beat myself for being a dumb shit all those years ago when that's all I had at my disposal? So for you, as you go along, and this goes back to the thing I was talking about with cymatics, you create what you think, what works for you in terms of your reality. And then you move along and then suddenly you realize that this paradigm that you had created in your mind based on what you learn, you suddenly realize, well, guess what? That part of it's bullshit. And what do you do? You dump the bullshit part and then you have more clarity and you open yourself up as something new to come along to create a new model of reality for yourself. So you've done a great job. So don't think that, you know, you outgrew those people. When I was working with some shamanic teachers years ago, and I started getting frustrated and I was working with this personal coach and she said to me, you know what? You're outgrowing them and you're going to be leaving them really soon. And I'm, th I'm thinking to myself, no, I'm not. This, this guy, blah, blah. Well, just a couple months later, bang, I was gone because I learned what I could from them. 
And then I found out, well, guess what? They're human and they're a flawed and they weren't perfect. And everything they said was not gospel, but it doesn't mean that there were a lot of good things, right? And even now. Yeah, that's that's taking, actually, you're ringing true with your, that's what you're saying is kind of, I agree with what you're saying. Uh, I well, just. That's because you're brilliant. <laughs> um no no but what you're saying right right that last little bit so um i do look at like all the fringe topics whether it's like ufos or alternative archaeology or whatever yeah there's obviously a lot of nonsense but i learned through going through that research that there are true anomalies out there there are true mysteries um and that's what i wanted mind escape to be from the beginning is what are let's let's knock away all the bullshit what do we know and what don't we know and i didn't know i didn't go through everything that we knew through science which was my mistake coming into this thing i wish you know, I, I can't go back. You know, I guess I can't even really say that I wish it was reversed. But, yeah. have you know, having the woo first, and now I just feel bad. Like, I I don't know. I get, like, because I get, like, hate mail and stuff. Be like, oh, you used to, be, you know, you used to talk about this or promote this, you know. Not, you know, it's just shit like that. And I don't necessarily, that's my truth, though. So, it's like, I don't feel bad for that necessarily. You I shouldn't. just feel, I just feel, like, guilty. Like, um, you shouldn't. I don't know. Yeah. You know, here's here's some words of wisdom for you. Joke them if they can't take a fuck. Right? They haven't been on your path. In 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 uh, in shamanism. So you know, I always get on this rap about shamanism and religion and spirituality. There's a difference between religion and spirituality. I probably said this to you before, but I'm going to repeat it for the benefit of everybody. Religion is based on the words of prophets. Um, Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree. Uh, Muhammad went into the cave. I always get the Christians with this one. Jesus went into the desert and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And when I like to tell him to get a rise out of him, it's like, if you go into the desert and you fast for 40 days and 40 nights, I guarantee you, you'll be talking to God too. So the difference between, so, so then I'm just going to use the Bible as an example. Jesus in the Bible and all that, and 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 the, the you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, right? And then there's four different versions of what happened from four different points of view, and then that that got written down, and then that, that got translated, and that got translated by somebody else, and somebody else translated that, and then King James came along and did his dance with it, and that got translated. Well, by the time it gets to the people, and they and they and it's the expression they take it as gospel truth, right? That's the expression. And it's the word of God. No, it's not. It's about four guys talking about somebody else's experience. And the shamans all go bullshit. The only way you can really learn is by direct experience. And you're having your direct experience and you're doing your research and you're finding things that interest you and you're going down that path. And then you're figuring out when you learn something that, oh, guess what? That thing that the other person said before that I thought was really good is bullshit. So you discard it. Well, that's that's it. why I've adopted this. So from learning philosophy, I learned that the only philosophy there really is is a philosophy um, of everything's always changing. So I've adopted yeah. that I'm not going to die on any hill because I might learn something tomorrow that's going to completely upend everything I knew today. So um, like I said, I'm just trying to be as transparent and honest with our listeners mm-hmm. and 
people that have, you know, supported us in the past. It's just, this is my path. And unfortunately it can't all be, um, you know, levitating blocks and whatever the fuck we're talking about. But I will say I do still have an affinity for those. I'll still watch stupid shit. I'll still watch, you know, sure. You know, ancient aliens or whatever shits on TV, you know, there's yeah, a lot yeah, of cool, yeah. there's a lot of interesting sites on those, you know? So it's just like, I, I, like I said, I just wanted to get that out there because I feel like I tiptoe around it sometimes, but I just, mm. it's better to just be like, dude, like, and the frustrating thing to me is now is like just all these other people that have all these massive platforms that I know they're just spewing shit out. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't, how do you even tackle that? Cause you can't, I don't know. I don't know. I, mm. this is just all bad. We're, we're, we're on a bad path as a, as a whole right now. You bet. And here's another thing and I'm telling people all the time, what is truly worth your energy? If you get caught up and you get caught up in some bullshit argument or this or that, or you're trying to argue what philosophy, politics, is it worth your energy? Like some of my friends get spun up and I go, why you even bother? I got better things to do with my time and my mind. And as I get older, my, my energy and my direction and my attention become even more important and more critical. I don't want to waste my time. When I see the shit that goes on with politics, there's a little part of me that's going psycho. I'm like, the hell with that. I got better things to think about. You know, I don't, I can't change all that anyway. They're going to do what they're going to like, do. Which, ho- which hellscape do you want? This hellscape or this yeah, hellscape? exactly. <laughs> what, what flavor do you want? Let me see. I'll have a shit sandwich today on rye, right? And then you get all spun up about it. You know, I, I got a... I got a really good friend of mine who I recently saw I hadn't seen for some years, and he's a total, total conspiracy theorist. And I'm not even going to argue with him. He's a good friend. I'm going to love him, but he's totally out to lunch. He believes in flat earth and he believes the moon landing was faked. And he's got all these Billy Bubba guys on there talking about like they're experts, you know, and they're sitting there with their. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Like if, if you want to do all that is like, okay, we know that this could be fake. Like if, like what level of discernment do we have? Cause if, if you want to, I think we should be able to have fun and talk about those stupid things if people yeah. want to talk about them. But I do right. think it gets dangerous when you have people that are like very rigid when they take information in. Uh, and if it's new to them, it could, you know, initiate them into be going down one of those rabbit holes. Maybe they don't have the mind for it if, if, mm-hmm. to be nice. Um, so and they don't know any better. And the other thing I find myself, doing this may sound funny but i treat everybody now like they're three years old and me i'm two i'm going on three maybe i'll be three someday but i mean i treat everybody like like they're three and then i can tolerate them more and i can have they're entitled to believe what they want i'm not going to try to change anybody's mind um it's like you and i now we're having this awesome discussion right I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. We're just having a nice, great, uh, deep philosophical discussion about our perception of reality and how we are in the world and what we think's going on. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying to find my way through this new, this new viewfinder. I find myself staring Mm -hmm. down to because initially, when I started, kind of these thoughts started creeping up, and I started doing even more research. 
I would then go under posts if I knew something was wrong and I'd be like, this is actually this inscription and here's why people think it's this and it's pareidolia and blah, 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 blah. And now it's like, I'm not going to convince that dude. That dude's just starting his journey. He's going to read hopefully these other two books and he'll figure out that what he's saying right now is wrong. So I, I, I think for me, I felt like I had to step in is where now I realize, um, I don't, I don't need to, because it's impossible to That's right. um, get through to some of those people, if that makes sense. It's, it's not your responsibility. You're responsible for you and you can speak your truth, which is what you do. And your truth can change when you learn more and you have more experience. I can also offer you this little tidbit for what it's worth. In, in my experience, I've gone through periods on this path where I didn't know which end was up. And I didn't know how to act. And I've gone through periods of total emptiness. And I'm not talking about, oh, I'm empty. Nobody loves not nothing like that. It wasn't even emotional. It was just empty. And I said, okay, I'm empty. Nothing's going on. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know who I am. I don't know which end is up. I'm just going to wait. And I've gone through periods of discomfort that have lasted sometimes pretty long periods of time. And then in the waiting, the answers start to come. And that's where I learned acceptance. Because you can't change, you and I can't change the world. We can't change what's going on in Ukraine and politics and blah. We can't change any of that. But we can remain flexible inside of ourselves and we can change our perception of it and how we put it together and how we interpret it. And then how we take what we interpret and give it to other people. You know, you with the podcast, me with my writing, the two of us here right now with the podcast and, and other things that I've done, we can take our interpretation and maybe, and I hear this a lot from people, I'll say something and they'll go, wow, I've never thought about it that way. And I'm smiling. I'll go, yeah, how about that? Right? Why don't you open yourself up and, and listen? You can make up your mind whether it's bullshit or not. That's That's great. But you're the ultimate one who makes the call. So you can accept it. You can fight it. You can argue about it. You can get pissed off. You can you can spin out. But you're ultimately responsible. And people will say to me, oh, you know, uh, uh, that person may be upset. And I'll stop them. I'll go, no, no, no. That person was the stimulus, but you're the one that made yourself upset. You got to take responsibility for what you think and what you feel. So you can go through periods of, 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 for lack of better words, like a, a drought where you don't know how to act and you wait and you wait and you wait and then bang, it'll start to come. And that's where I started to learn acceptance because acceptance means you can't control everything, but you can control how you interpret it. Well, I mean, and so, yeah, it's double bad for me too, because I'm already feel like a guilty person on top of that. You have OCD. So, I mean, you're always doing what you're talking, you know, like you're always um, thinking about that aspect of it. So um, I don't know, man, it's uh, what you said there helps out a lot. I think just even having this conversation has already helped me realize a couple things too. Um, and, you know, another thing that uh, I started to do instead of like step trying to like step in and like show this person what's up or help this person, you know, find other books that may have, you know, better meaning for that or whatever the case may be. 
So I started mm-hmm. doing like, so that energy is kind of can be toxic and can be negative depending on the interaction. So instead I'm, I'm like, well, what am I, I'm all about creativity, art. So lately I've been promoting a lot of heady, like glass artists and mm-hmm. uh, musicians and people like you, like authors, people that are actually being creative and doing something original. So the energy I was using to promote other people's work of pseudo, whatever the fuck it is, is now being directed through, you know, spreading the love about creativity and art and music and all that kind of stuff. So you bet. You know, uh, briefly, I just want to give a shout out. I'm I'm watching the messages go by here on the right of my screen. Oh yeah, so I try I, and tap in. Yeah, yeah, we got a few. Yeah, no, I appreciate all the good words there. Man's laughter, and I thought I saw Gnosis in there and Nicholas Burnett. Um, all you guys, I really appreciate your your good words there. Um, thank you. I won't let my head get too big over it. Um, I'm a legend in my own mind. That's as far as I'll go. But I just want to acknowledge you guys and really appreciate the the good words. Oh, all all of the people in the boards are usually super intelligent, well uh, experienced people that know what's up. So yeah, shout out to Man's Laughter and Hanab and um, yeah, I saw him go by Kafka, Nicholas, Chase was in go. here for a second. Uh, Iowaks, everybody, thank you, George, yeah. thank you. Um, you know, it's nice to have people commenting because it's like, I'm not going to read every single question, but if I see something that's pertinent or like fits oh, yeah. in with like what we're talking about, I love fitting that in and, you know, throwing that yeah. in there for those people, you know. Um, so, but uh, yeah, man, I mean, we can start to wrap it up here, but I feel yeah. like uh, I feel like this was probably our best episode together in the sense that like, I feel like I, at least me, I definitely got something out of it. I hope you did too but i always um, do well, and i, I have you guys indulging me <laughs> satiating your desires um there you go in, in a man's laughter and you guys mwah, mwah, mwah. <laughs> um so yeah you have your new book out now which is the um fiction it's the tales it's the uh the thinning veil 13 yeah. twisted tales so yeah. are those all like like halloween or like uh horror themed tales or they're horror science fiction horror um i really stretched myself on this one it's my third short story collection okay and so i did a lot of research i got some weird genetic stuff in there i got oh, nice. a nice classic uh werewolf horror story Ooh, juicy. Uh, I have an old, I, I did a thing like I did a really old school Scottish haunted castle story. But the, the protagonist is somebody who's um, into gaming. Oh, really? And, and role playing. <laughs> and I and then I tied in role playing uh, with a werewolf story. I've got oh, some nice. great, um, I, won't, I won't go into all the specifics of all the plots, but like I got one, I was reading about a guy getting... Um, a pig's heart and a transplant. Oh yeah, I just saw that not that long ago. No, that was the second one. The first one was about five years ago. Oh okay, gotcha. And then and then they just did another one, like about a week ago. Yeah. So I have a story about a guy who's literally sort of a pig himself, <laughs> uh, in all his ways. You know, he, he's, he eats like a pig. He's a sexual pig, and he gets a pig's heart, and he starts turning into a pig. Um, and he's Harvey Weinstein, folks. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Or was love child? Or the first episode of? Did you ever watch uh, Black Mirror? Oh, I love it. 
Yeah, the I first episode. People t- didn't really like that first episode. They really that turned was, it off. Yeah, that's intense, too. <laughs> I got to the end of that, and I was like, they're broadcasting this? Are you shitting me? So I, I, I went along, and I and I tried to vary it so they weren't all predictable. Um, I have, I can go on about the stories, but I want to tell you really quick about the, the, the cover. Yeah. The cover of it. Um, and the link down below, anybody's interested, the link's at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. And anybody who's familiar with ayahuasca visionary art, Pablo Amaringo was the guy who originated ayahuasca art painting. And I did a, a show with all his students and based around him. I was part of an exhibit traveling around the country lecturing on shamanism. And one of the uh, primary proteges and artists is uh, Alfredo Zacasitas, who was a very close friend of mine. So when I was down in the jungle last October, I went to his gallery and he had this great shamanic picture and I took a picture of it. And then he says, okay, everybody shut your eyes. So we shut our eyes and he shut off the lights and he put on a black light and totally different under black light. And they're also 3D. But I took a picture of the regular picture and the regular light and I took a picture of the black light one and I asked his permission and I photoshopped them together. So it's the same picture, but one's black light and one is not. So um, I wanted to represent the thinning veil and he was really, he, he loved it and, and he, he let me use it. So I just wanted to mention that um, there's, there's that ayahuasca influence, which can't seem to get away. Nice. But, um, yeah, don't get me going on that because we'll be here all night and I know you want to wrap No, we can, we can, we can talk longer, dude. I, 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 you know, I was, feeling the vibes i thought maybe but we, yeah we can keep going yeah. if you want to talk about that go ahead go uh, well on. i you know one of the stories is about uh jesus and satan and they're hanging out with god in in his spirit and you know uh satan was the uh lucifer the morning dawn the bringer of light the highest angel and they made him a scapegoat and God basically says, yeah, that, look what you did with Satan, my number one. And then I send my number one Jesus down there, and you crucified him. So every time I show you the light, you guys screw it up anyway. I'm paraphrasing here. But the whole story is based around that. Um, I got, there, there's 13 of them. I picked 13. Short stories can be tremendously difficult to write uh, because you got to get the plot, and you want to try to be original. Uh, which is harder and harder as time goes on, and you want to get them all in there. But uh, as I mentioned, Ray Bradbury was one of my mentors, and he was a one of the best short story writers ever. So I wanted to follow along in, in that vein. I got one story based on dedicated to him based on one of his stories. So, and I'd like to think, you know, I've been writing now for forty five years. That's my nineteenth book. So I'd like to think maybe I know what I'm doing. Uh, a little oh, bit no. at this point. Dude, you're a really gifted writer, bro. I wouldn't even worry yeah. about that. And you're, well, crank, you're cranking them out, too. I mean, this is not something that you, you do on the side or take lately. I mean, you're cranking these things out. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, I'm i obsessed. I'm an obsessive fool. Um, Every time, every once in a while, I go through a period like, what am I still doing this for? What are you, nuts? And then, and then I think about it for a while, and I go, well, shit, what else are you going to do? And you've been perfecting your art for all this time. So I want to stay at it. 
and as I mentioned, I'm also a vocalist and a percussionist. So uh, that keeps me off the street, and I'm now in a position where I don't have to work a day job anymore. Yeah, so, dude, I, I told you in the messages. Uh, I said, devoted helps watch out for that street, more. bro. And if I go for too long without writing anything, I start. It's my 